The actions we're taking today are not a matter of choice. They're a matter of necessity. Actually, they're a matter of choice. Other than that, you're totally right. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. It isn't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, in Oregon on KYAQ on the Central Coast and Queso in Cottage Grove, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, in Maui, Hawaii on KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, in Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle, Washington's KODX, Red Bluff and Redding, California's KFOI, Round Mountain, California's KKRN, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950. We also stream coast-to-coast every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth. Five days a week, at least. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Welcome to the Bradcast. Stay focused, stay focused. Desi Doyen, I'm trying to stay focused. I know, it's hard. It is not easy. And as a matter of fact, I don't even want to really cover this because everyone else is, but I guess I sort of have to because I think it's going to have pretty gigantic fallout. Uh, President Donald Trump signed proclamations imposing tariffs. Those are taxes, by the way, for anybody who may not understand that word, on imports of steel and aluminum this afternoon. Today, I'm defending America's national security by placing tariffs on foreign imports of steel and aluminum. We will have a 25% tariff on foreign steel and a 10% tariff on foreign aluminum. We have to protect and build our steel and aluminum industries, while at the same time showing great flexibility and cooperation toward those that are really friends of ours. The actions we're taking today are not a matter of choice. They're a matter of necessity for our security. No, they are not. Not by any way, uh, shape, or form. These are a matter of choice by Donald Trump, who thinks that this is a matter of necessity. As a matter of fact, I'm not even sure that he thinks it's a matter of necessity. He just thinks it's something that he decided to do, that's something he believed was good while he was on the campaign trail. And uh, if he does these things now, it will distract from all of his other problems and it will succeed, I suspect, to some extent there. The new taxes that Donald Trump is um, announcing today, he says, will take effect in about 15 days. He says that Canada and Mexico could be exempted based on the outcome of talks to renegotiate NAFTA or the North American Free Trade Agreement. U.S. Democratic whip 
Dick Durbin issued uh, this statement right after the uh, after the president's statement. He said President Trump wants to put China on notice for their abusive trade practices that hurt American workers and industries. I support that. The sweeping tariffs announced today, however, are like dropping a bomb on a flea. Launching an all-out trade war will alienate the allies we need to actually solve the problem of steel dumping and could have huge unintended consequences for American manufacturers who depend on imported materials. Uh, among the uh, the companies and industries that will be hurt by today's announcements, uh, that includes the auto uh, automobile industry, auto parts manufacturers, beer companies, um, airlines like uh, Boeing, or I should say uh, uh, airplane manufacturers like Boeing, oil companies have blasted this move, car manufacturers like Ford. Uh, and it's not just Democrats either who oppose this move. Arizona Senator John McCain issued a statement blasting the new steel and aluminum tariffs, saying, quote, this decision will harm the American economy, hurt American workers, damage relations with America's allies and partners over in the House. House Speaker Paul Ryan said he disagreed with the move, saying he feared it would have unintended consequences. His, in his statement, he said, we will continue to urge the administration to narrow this policy so that it is focused only on those countries and practices that violate trade law. One Senate Republican uh, uh, leader here is promising to introduce legislation to nullify these new tariffs. Senator Jeff Flake of Arizona says, quote, Congress cannot be complicit as the administration courts economic disaster. He's urging his colleagues to pass the bill before the administration inflicts, quote, more damage on the economy. Trump's uh, exemptions on steel and aluminum products from Mexico and Canada if, in fact, he exempts them, uh, will not satisfy lawmakers, apparently. Congressman Mark Walker of North Carolina, the chairman of the far right wing conservative Republican study committee in the House, said it's better to target just the, quote, rogue players. Another GOP bill would require Congress to approve trade actions like this. But uh, AP notes that it is doubtful the GOP-led Congress can muster the votes to block Trump on them. Nonetheless, we have all been warned. Uh, we, we have been warned long ago, frankly. In the early 2000s, George W. Bush imposed similar tariffs. That resulted in the loss of some 200,000 jobs. But hey, why learn from facts and history and stuff? Uh, I'm sure this will all go very well. Well, just buckle up, as we keep saying. Yeah, we are well buckled. Uh, <laughs> speaking of uh, speaking of that, uh, Desi Doyne, you'll be back with the Green News Report uh, yes. for us today. Uh, a good one, in fact. Not necessarily a good news, but uh, a good a Just, good report. It's got a lot, a lot of, of stuff uh, interesting, in it. helpful stuff. Yes, Dense. that is coming up. And uh, speaking of climate, with everything else that is going on, I bet you didn't hear about the new report from Donald Trump's own administration finding that the benefits of regulations, yes, those job-killing regulations that you've heard so much about, that the benefits of those regulations actually far outweigh the costs of those regulations in almost every measurable way. Little surprise, I suspect, uh, that you haven't heard about that report from the Trump administration. We'll talk about uh, 
both uh, that report and why you haven't heard about it shortly with our old friend David Roberts of Vox.com momentarily. You haven't had him here in a while, so looking forward to that. Uh, but first, as we continue to work our way out from under our ongoing national emergency that is the Trump administration. Some some good news here that is likely to help a bit, at least in the efforts to bring an end to our long national nightmare as the uh, 2018 mid, uh, 2018 midterms are now officially underway. A couple of good news voting items. Yay. Let's start with some good news <laughs> for a change, shall we? Washington state is set to become the latest State to automatically register citizens to vote at state agencies. The state House and Senate agreed on language and passed the legislation on Wednesday. Automatic voter registration is a bipartisan approach to registering eligible voters that saves money, increases the accuracy of voter rolls and boosts voter participation, according to the Brennan Center for Justice. This bill will now go to uh, Washington State Governor Jay Inslee. He's expected to sign it. When signed, they note, Washington will now join nine other states and Washington, D.C., that have approved automatic voter registration. This is very good news. As Republican states out there are trying to restrict the right to vote, uh, we have some states, mostly so-called blue states who are doing the opposite, who are trying to make it easier to vote, easier to register to vote. Yeah, and, and as you point out, I mean, Governor Jay Inslee of Washington State is a Democrat. Yep. Under the bill, Washingtonians uh, who apply for uh, who apply for or renew an, an enhanced driver's license at the Department of Licensing will automatically be registered to vote unless they decline. The bill also requires public assistance agencies to move toward automatic voter registration as well and for the state's health benefit exchange to implement electronic voter registration. State Senator Sam Hunt, he's the uh, lead Senate sponsor, said a strong government is built on access to democracy and the right to vote is the key. Automatic voter registration is one of the major steps that Washington is taking to provide the most progressive, secure voter registration and election system in the country. The bill is part of the state's access to democracy legislative package which includes critical voting reforms like same-day registration, as well as pre-registration for 16- and 17-year-olds. We have that uh, out here in California, a new bill that was uh, passed within, uh, I think, or signed, I should say, within the past week or so would add uh, automatic registration for 16- and 17-year-olds as well. Pre-registration. The uh, initiative in Washington had widespread support and assistance from groups uh, in the Washington Voting Justice Coalition, along with the Brennan Center. Uh, Natalie Tennant, who uh, manages uh, the state advocacy at the Brennan Center, said that automatic voter registration is a practical, common-sense approach that makes government more efficient and keeps the voter rolls clean and secure. Washington has taken a major leap forward in strengthening its democracy. There's uh, some good news, and here's a bit more in my own home state of California. Where I'm not uh, crazy about the way we run elections, but it's getting uh, mildly better. California election officials must notify voters before rejecting their mail-in ballots, 
over concerns that the signature is not authentic, according to a San Francisco judge this week. Awesome. Yeah. Current uh, California election law allows officials to toss out vote-by-mail ballots if they suspect the signature on the envelope does not match the signature on file for the voter but without giving the voter a chance to respond. That's just one of the reasons why I have long uh, railed against vote-by-mail and absentee voting unless you must, unless you're actually not going to be there on Election Day. But uh, California is one of the states that is moving towards all vote-by-mail elections. That's a terrible idea, I would argue, for a number of reasons. But among them, uh, as I've argued in other states... Um, you know, absentee ballots can be tossed out and you will never know simply because some bureaucrat who is not who is not a handwriting expert has decided that uh, that signature doesn't belong to the the person who signed the voter registration card. Even if you signed your voter registration card 20 years ago. Yeah. People's signatures change over time. Yeah. This is a documented real thing. Yes, it's a real thing. And yet. Uh, we had to go to court to make the state of California and uh, California's Secretary of State, Alex Padilla, a Democrat, apparently understand that. The ACLU of Northern California had to sue. They argued the practice is unconstitutional of throwing out these ballots without letting the voters know. San Francisco Superior Court Judge Richard Ulmer Jr. agreed and ruled on Monday that rejecting ballots without warning violates due process. He ruled that voters must be given a chance to explain and correct any discrepancies so that their ballot might still be counted. Tens of thousands of people were being denied their right to vote because a government official was making arbitrary decisions about penmanship, said the ACLU's uh, senior staff attorney, Michael uh, uh, Risher. In a statement, handwriting varies and perceived mismatch and a perceived mismatch does not give election officials the right to refuse to count a vote. The lawsuit here, uh, La Follette versus Padilla, was filed on behalf of Sonoma County resident Peter La Follette, who cast his vote by mail in the November 2016 election. According to the lawsuit, county election officials did not count his ballot after determining that uh, the, the ballot signature did not match a signature that they had on file for him. But officials never told him about the issue because state law does not require them to do so. La Follette learned that his ballot was thrown out only eight months later, according to the suit, after searching voting records online. An estimated 33 to 45,000 voters in California suffered the same fate, according to the lawsuit in the 2016 election. 33 to 45,000 voters had their votes just tossed out. And we're never told. We're never given a, a way to come in and cure it and say, no, yeah, this is me. I broke my right arm and therefore I had to sign it with my left hand. Rather than preventing suspected voter fraud, Brennan Center says the uh, state law unfairly targets certain voters. Voters with physical disabilities or injuries may have signatures that vary over time. In addition, voters who speak a primary language that does not use Roman characters, such as many Asian American voters, were unfairly impacted by the law as well, according to the suit. Uh, the judge said in his ruling that courts around the nation have invalidated practices similar to California's. 
He wrote, the statute fails to provide for notice that a voter is being disenfranchised and and or an opportunity for the voter to to be heard. These are fundamental rights. Those 33 to 45,000 estimated voters who had their ballots tossed in 2016, that's enough to swing an election, especially a presidential election in other states. Certain states, yeah. Uh, Speaking of presidential elections in certain states, uh, two Democratic senators on Wednesday, according to Reuters, asked major vendors of U.S. voting equipment whether they have allowed Russian entities to scrutinize their software, saying the practice could allow Moscow to hack into American elections infrastructure. The letter from Senators Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota And Gene Shaheen of New Hampshire followed a series of Reuters reports saying that several major global technology providers have allowed Russian authorities to hunt for vulnerabilities in software deeply embedded across the U.S. government. The senators requested that the three largest election equipment vendors in the U.S., that would be Elections Systems and Software, ESNS, Dominion Voting Systems, which is largely the combination of what had once been Diebold and uh, the Sequoia voting systems, uh, and the uh, third largest, Hart InterCivic, based in Texas. Uh, the, the senators requested that those vendors answer whether they have shared source code or inner workings or other sensitive data about their technology with any Russian entity. They also asked whether any software on those companies' products had been shared with Russia and for the vendors to explain what steps they have taken to improve the security of those products against cyber threats to the election. I can tell you the answer there. The answer would be none, zero, nada. They have taken no actions to improve the security of these products. But of course, I need to note, it is not only threats from Russia. It is threats from any nation or any person. And there is no way, no way, To prevent an election insider like an election official or one of the contractors from those private companies which program these voting machines and these uh, computerized paper ballot tabulators, there is no way from stopping those people from manipulating results if they wish to. And because the public is not allowed to oversee the results, they can get away with it. The bad guys can get away with it. And also, by the way, accidents, uh, misprogramming happens all the time and affects elections. And we also rarely find out about that either. The vendors could not uh, immediately be reached for comments, says Reuters. It was not immediately clear whether any of the vendors had made sales in Russia, where they note votes are submitted via written, handmarked paper ballots and counted by hand. Hello? Uh, The senators wrote, according to the voting machine testing uh, and certification from the election U.S. Elections Assistance Commission, most voting machines contain software from firms that were alleged to have shared their source code with Russian entities. Senators say they're deeply concerned that such reviews may have prevented uh, presented an opportunity for Russian intelligence agents looking to attack or hack the U.S. elections infrastructure. Yeah, you think? But here's the thing. It does not take uh, sharing source code with anybody to make all of this possible. It was done by hackers at the DEF CON convention in Vegas just last year, late last year, within about 15 minutes. They don't need the source. Nobody needs the source code to hack these systems. The folks at Princeton, 
to whom we gave a Diebold touchscreen system back in 2005 that I obtained from a source. Uh, those machines, by the way, they're still used all across the state of uh, Georgia, by the way. Uh, we gave it to Princeton. They were able to hack the machine to flip every vote cast on it and add code that would pass itself to, from machine to machine and change all future votes on those machines in about 60 seconds. And they had no access to source code. Reuters says U.S. voters in November will go to the polls in uh, midterm elections, which American intelligence officials have warned could be targeted by Russia or others. Thank you for mentioning that, Reuters. Uh, seeking to disrupt the process, uh, they note 21 states experienced probing of their systems by Russian hackers during the 2016 election, at least according to U.S. intelligence officials. Though a small number of networks were compromised, they say voting machines were not directly affected. That myth is getting spread throughout. And uh, they go on to say, and there remains no evidence any vote was altered, according to U.S. officials and security experts. Now, I've written to Reuters to try and reach uh, the reporter here, Dustin Voles, uh, to get comment as to where he is sourcing this claim that voting machines were not directly affected. As far as we know, publicly, uh, the Department of Homeland Security Assistant Secretary uh, Jeanette Manfra was, uh, when she was asked about that at the Senate intelligence hearing last year, I think in June right. of 2017, she conceded that the DH, uh, DHS had not actually checked any, any voting machines or any computer tabulators to see if they were directly affected by anyone, whether it was Russia or anyone else. Now, I've yet to hear back from Reuters or Dustin Volts on this. Uh, if I do, I'll let you know. Um, and it's interesting because folks in the media are less, uh, they're not very good at uh, responding or to requests for comments. <laughs> the, the very people who uh, do this for a living. In any event, uh, Reuters, and, and therefore, as you note, Des, um, others in the media, and, and uh, politicians, both Republican and Democrat, uh, Democrats alike, have repeatedly made this argument that voting machines were not directly affected. But to my knowledge, there is zero evidence whatsoever to support that. None. Now, I'm not the Russia hawk that many are when it comes to what may or may not have happened in our 2016 uh, presidential elections. But at least I'm willing to admit that we have no idea when it comes to actual election results uh, and, and who may or may not have meddled in them or manipulated them, we have no idea, therefore, who actually won or lost the 2016 presidential election. And given all of the noise the Democrats are offering about Russia meddling in our 2016 election, and given that just three votes registered for Hillary Clinton instead of Donald Trump, in each precinct in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, if you had three votes for Hillary instead of Donald Trump in those three states, that would have resulted in a Clinton presidency instead of in the ongoing national nightmare that we now face. So with all of that, you'd think someone would have wanted to actually check those machines. But I guess a sternly worded letter uh, from a couple of senators to the terrible corporate voting system companies uh, who have allowed who have been allowed to uh, privatize what used to be our public elections, I guess that will have to suffice for the moment. 
Speaking of our new national nightmare and the uh, real effect that it is having on the country and the world and of the media's continuing failure to focus on the public evidence that we have and that we don't have about what actually matters, uh, we will be joined by uh, David Roberts of Vox.com next to discuss the Trump administration's own new report finding that the benefit of regulations far outweigh the costs of regulations. That's next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Remember me, the guy who was warning you about Donald Trump from the day he entered the race, when the rest of the U.S. media were telling you his candidacy was a joke, that he'd never win, and that Hillary Clinton had it in the bag. We told you otherwise from the beginning and up until Election Day. Well, we may have been right, but we still don't have corporate or foundational support. We still rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate to support the work that Desi Doyen and I do every day. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thank you. Pay the price, all right. Welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. It is a grand illusion, at least since uh, Ronald Reagan in the 80s. As you may have heard, the Trump administration really, really hates regulations. All regulations, any and all of them, as they will tell you. They all stifle economic growth and kill jobs. They are unnecessary red tape preventing America from becoming great again. And, of course, they are little more than a, a sign of big government bureaucracy at its very worst. They are, they are so terrible for America and so costly to Americans that the administration has vowed to cut at least two burdensome regulations for every one that they add. Though Trump has bragged many times that his administration has killed far more regulations than even that since taking office. We've eliminated a record number of job-killing regulations. All job-killing regulations. The never-ending growth of red tape in America has come to a sudden screeching and beautiful halt. No president has ever cut so many regulations in their entire term. Excessive regulation costs our economy $2 trillion a year. You believe that? $2 trillion a year. No, actually, I, I'm not sure I do believe it, Mr. President. Uh, of course, the number of regulations that he's actually killed versus those that he has announced he he wants to kill or that he was killing or that his, his administration is either trying to kill or has killed only to be ordered by courts of law to actually restore since the killing was done in the in violation of the law well that's a different matter still make no mistake about it these guys really really hate regulations and in truth the trump administration is largely just acting out the right-wing regulation killing dream that republicans have long called for far before stormy daniels was even a glint in donald trump's eye 
As Vox.com's David Roberts writes this week, President Donald Trump's administration has been a dere- has been on a deregulatory bender, particularly when it comes to environmental regulations. As of January, the New York Times counted 67 environmental rules on the chopping block under Trump. This is not one of Trump's idiosyncrasies. His administration is more ham-handed and flagrant about it, but the antipathy it expresses toward federal regulation falls firmly within the GOP mainstream. Republicans have been complaining about, quote, burdensome and, quote, job-killing regulations for so long that their opposition to any particular health, safety, or environmental regulation is now just taken for granted. For instance... Roberts says, why would the Environmental Protection Agency close a program investigating the effects of toxins on children's health, as they announced at the end of last month? Is there some evidence that the money is wasted or poorly spent? Why would the EPA allow more unregulated disposal of toxic coal ash, as they proposed late last week? Don't people in coal regions deserve clean air and water? Is there any reason to think that coal ash is currently well-regulated? These questions, Roberts observes, barely even come up anymore. Republicans oppose regulations because they are regulations. It's become reflexive, both for the party and for the media that cover them. Perhaps he should have said that uh, cover for them. In any event, as it happens, we know something about the costs and benefits of federal regulations. In fact, Trump's own administration, specifically the nonpartisan, at least for now, White White House Office of Management and Budget, or the OMB, just released its annual report on that very subject. The report was released late on a Friday with Congress out of session and multiple Trump scandals dominating the headlines, a cynical observer, well, one like David Roberts anyway, might conclude that the administration wanted the report to go unnoticed. And that, as he explains, is likely for good reason. In a nutshell, he describes this week at Vox the OMB report on regulations, the report from Donald Trump's own Office of Management and Budget, shows that the GOP and Trump himself is wrong about regulations as a general matter and wrong about Obama's regulations specifically. Those regulations, he notes, had benefits far in excess of their costs and they had no discernible effect on jobs or economic growth. Imagine that. Here to discuss the facts that matter to all of us, but which the bulk of the corporate media seems to have very little time to notice these days. To the great pleasure of Mr. Trump and the entire Republican Party, I suspect, is our old friend David Roberts. He writes about politics, climate and energy and the confluence thereof at Vox.com. He's uh, covered these issues for well over a decade now. Uh, at Vox, at Grist, and everywhere else. David Roberts, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Hey, Brad. Happy to be here. So uh, just to clarify before we get to some specifics, this annual report that you write about detailing the benefits of federal regulations far outweighing the cost of federal regulations, this really comes from the Donald Trump's own Office of Management and Budget headed up by Donald Trump's own far-right-wing Tea Party uh, never saw a regulation he didn't want to kill OMB chief Mick Mulvaney? Really? 
Well, <laughs> I think the right way to view this yeah. is, is as kind of a result of momentum that was already underway before these guys took office, hmm. and probably they just maybe haven't noticed yet that it's <laughs> that the, you know this report is scheduled. Uh, so, so one really one one important thing to clarify here is, mm-hmm. for the most part, it's not OMB that came up with these numbers. What mm-hmm. they did is they went to the agencies, and and the agencies have been required since like I don't know 1990 or so to do cost benefit analysis on every regulation they do. Mm-hmm. So all OMB did is go to these agencies and say, please give us the the cost benefit analysis that mm. you ran on these regulations. And there was a few places where. OMB had to fill in some numbers or, or alter the analysis based on its own criteria. But for the most part, these are analyses done by the agencies themselves. Mm-hmm. So it's really the whole Trump federal government <laughs> right. that's, that's, that's saying this. Of course, these are, you know, these are second-tier bureaucrats who, who care, you know, and who are left over probably from the Obama administration and mm-hmm. who are... And these, and these cost-benefit analyses that they've done, I think, were probably done and completed before Trump took office. So I doubt we'll see another report like this, but <laughs> this one kind of snuck out. Yeah, it, it did, and it snuck out, and the media have not really been covering it, which makes me none too happy. We'll try to talk about that in a bit. So, But the top-line uh, numbers here, David, what, what did the report find regarding sort of the aggregate, aggregate uh, uh, benefits versus costs when it comes to major federal regulations that were looked at in this annual report? Well, um, you know, there's a lot of methodological sort of caveats here and a lot of, you know, this is an approximate thing. Not every single regulation got cost-benefit analysis, et cetera, et cetera, caveat, caveat. Mm -hmm. But the aggregate costs, and this is, uh, again, to clarify, major federal regulations, which means $100 million or more Mm -hmm. in impact, between 2006 and 2016, that 10-year period, so mm-hmm. basically ending right before Trump took office. That's the, that's the period of the analysis. The aggregate costs were somewhere between 59 and $88 billion, and the aggregate benefits were somewhere between 219 and $695 billion. So even if you take the highest possible estimate of costs and the lowest possible estimate of benefits, benefits are still well over double uh, uh, what the costs were. Yeah. The most conservative analysis. It, and and, and I, another thing I, I feel like I should point out here, mm-hmm. because the way the, you know, the way people are reading the post is like, oh my God, OMB has revealed this, this amazing secret that Trump doesn't want anybody to know. But, but just to be clear, like, we've known this mm-hmm. about federal regulations for a long time. Like, there's a bunch of different analyses. Mm-hmm. Like, these things have been subjected to cost-benefit analysis out the wazoo for mm-hmm. years and years, not only by the federal government, but by outside analysts and everything. And, 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 and they all more or less converge on this same answer, which is that the public health and social and, and employment benefits of these things wildly outweigh the costs and, and have for years. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's it's revealing, I think, that this is treated as a revelation, right? It yep. ought to be commonplace by now. It's the it's the it's the consensus of of the experts. Yeah. Like I, I, we just don't accept it because Republicans just through sheer just through the sheer weight of repetition yep. <laughs> have been saying job killing regulations, you know, burdensome regulations, et cetera, et cetera, for so long 
that that's just sort of baked into the cake as one side of the debate, even though there's no support for it. There's no analysis that supports that. Th- there used to be, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to remember back in, you know, call it the 80s and 90s, mm-hmm. Republicans would oppose regulations, but they would oppose an individual regulation and say, in this case, you know, for mm-hmm. this set of industrial actors, you know, for this reason and that reason, this regulation is not is not worthwhile, right? At least they would make a case. But it's like everything else on the right, like all the thought and analysis has kind of shriveled and dried up, and all that's left is just this reflexive, knee-jerk, regulations are bad, regulations yeah. are bad. They don't, even, there's no, they don't even bother to try to support that no. with analysis anymore, you y- know what I mean? Y- no, I do know what you mean, and we, uh, because we do try to uh, report on these. Uh, actually, Desi Doyen is very good in our Green News report of, uh, you know, when they start killing these regulations, you know, pointing out these new reports that show, well, wait, we get a whole lot more, we benefit a whole lot more from uh, this methane rule that they want to kill or whatever it is. Uh, but you're right, seeing them all together in, in the aggregate here is, is actually kind of uh, jaw-dropping when you see just those top-line numbers. And the, and the reason they hate it, I yeah. mean, the reasons Republicans hate this is because when you see it in aggregate like this, mm-hmm. it's almost enough to convince you that government can be an agent of good, <laughs> right. that it can improve public health and welfare while still maintaining economic growth. Well, that comes down to, you know, when we compare cost versus benefit, I guess, uh, the question, David, is uh, the, the cost to whom and the benefits to whom. Yeah, and this is a point I made in the post, too, which I also feel like is not really widely appreciated. I feel like, you know, when people analyze Republican health care policy mm-hmm. or, or Republican policy regarding the financial sector or Republican tax policy, it's very clear what's going on there, right? They're cutting taxes for rich people <laughs> and increasing them for poor people. Mm-hmm. They're transferring money up the income scale, mm-hmm. right? That's what, that's what unites Republican policy in all these different areas. But for some reason, we kind of look at environmental policy as its own little isolated world. But, but, but in my opinion, you, we should be using the same lens because the costs fall on industrialists fall on, um, you know, uh, uh, executives uh, at energy companies. And the benefits are borne by average people. And not just average people, but the people who suffer most from pollution tend to be the most vulnerable populations, minorities and low income. So, so, so um, mm-hmm. air quality regulations are a downward redistribution of income. That's the right way to think about them. It's taking income out of corporate pockets and putting it into the pockets of average people who have to breathe the air. And, and the reverse, reversing or, or getting rid of these regulations is an upward income redistribution. You're taking po- money out of the pockets of ordinary people in the form of health costs mm-hmm. and missed work and all the rest of it, and you're putting it in the pockets of industrialists who are already <laughs> wealthy. You know, So in mm-hmm. a sense, it's, it, it is absolutely in line with and of a, of a piece with the rest of GOP policy is the and, same thing. And, and, of course, the GOP, you know, says they are against any sort of redistribution of wealth, uh, you know. Only the downward kind exactly. in, in practice. Right. And when it's, it goes the other way, well, that's, uh, you know, the first step on the road to socialism, which is a dog whistle for communism. 
Yes. Next yeah. thing we know, nobody will have asthma, and God, then then what's going to then what? Happen? Yeah, think of all the doctors you put out of work. Bit. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, you write that uh, this is why uh, th- that is why the Republicans hate e- the EPA and its rules. They're burden. They're a burden to industry, but worse, they're a burden to industry that is very obviously worth it. In other words, worth it to the uh, public. Industry makes a small sacrifice. Public health improves, and economic growth continues apace. EPA rules are a living demonstration of the good the government can do. But if economic growth continues apace, as this report shows and others, of course, isn't that also good for the industries in question? Why would why are the Republicans so opposed to these things? I mean, doesn't it, in fact, float all boats and float those uh, industry boats that they're so worried about? Well, I think the right way the right way to look at it is that. The U.S. economy is huge. <laughs> it's really, really, really big. Mm-hmm. And any given regulation is, is relatively small compared to that. Like, right? like, even if you get every power company to cut power emissions, just even all the power companies cumulatively remain a relatively small fraction of the economy. So it just makes, like, the economy's growth is driven by macroeconomic factors like demographics, population, you know, uh-huh. um, uh, uh, technology. And relative to those gigantic drivers, regulations are just like they're just farts in the wind. They're just not that big. They're just not that big an effect one way or the other on, on economic growth or on aggregate national employment. The reason conservatives hate them is because they are, while they're while they're they don't um, while they're not a substantial cost to the economy as a whole or to jobs as a whole, they can be a substantial cost to particular industries, yes. and those industries are the donors and yeah. allies of the GOP. So there's really nothing more complicated here than than the GOP protecting its its donor its, its, its donor base. Donors. I yeah, mean, I wish I wish I had a fancier story to tell. No, but, I, but no, <laughs> There's no larger economic case. That's what you know. That's what I was trying to say before. Like they've abandoned argument, right? Like they've abandoned yeah. attempts to justify any of this. They they, they don't even try, they and they're they're not pushed to do it. I don't feel right. uh, uh, by the media. They're allowed yeah, to right. say over and over again, you know, job killing, job killing regulations. But let's let's focus on that point because you you write about that as well. Uh, so what happens? Uh, when a coal company, for example, can't afford to not pollute a river or a stream with toxic coal ash, so they have to, you know, go out of business or stop mining or whatever, uh, and and those coal miners get fired. Isn't that the very example of uh, of a job killing regulation? Yeah. Well, let, let, let's clarify two senses of job killing here. <laughs> there's there's job killing in the sense that it might kill particular jobs, right? And in that sense, yes, some regulations are job-killing. Like, if you have a job that is devoted to, uh, you know, creating mm-hmm. pollution, <laughs> and we pass pollution regulations, you might lose your job. Like, right. it's, it's not to say that no regulation ever kills any job. Obviously, they do. But what economists have found when they study these things over time, environmental regulations in particular, is 
you lose jobs here, but you tend to gain them over here. Like sometimes it's in mm-hmm. environmental remediation technologies, like all those filters and cleaners and stuff that the coal plants have to attach. Somebody has got to make those mm-hmm. and sell those, you know, mm-hmm. like those are jobs too. Or, or it may be that jobs move from one industry to another. So regulations definitely can shift jobs around. They can kill some and create others. And, and, and to look at and to find out the exact effect of an in, individual regulation, you really have to study the individual regulation. Like, so, you know, they have they tend to have different effects one way or the other. But the but the larger point is, even in the even for the most major regulations, those effects tend to be small one way or the other. Very, very small relative to a national economy that employs tens of millions of people, you know. So mm-hmm. so so there's there's no environmental regulation you can point to where you can find a discernible effect on national aggregate employment <laughs> levels, right? There's just, they're just not big enough to do that. So, mm. so again, like, that's not to say that the coal guy who loses his job is, like, we don't care about that, right? I mean, obviously, like, if you're in those communities, mm-hmm. if, you're representing, if you're representing those people in Congress, mm-hmm. you're going to care about those jobs more than other jobs, right? Because <laughs> those are mm-hmm. the ones you're... That's 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 your right. job to sure. do, but 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 that does not give you license to lie, right? Like you yeah. should say, I you know this regulation is going to shift jobs out of industries and areas that I represent into industries and areas that other people represent, mm-hmm. and I don't want you to do that, right? That's fine, that's yeah. honest. Yeah. But, but saying they're going to like destroy the economy is just stupid. It's just there's just no evidence for that, and just because you say something that has no evidence backing it over and over and over again does not make it any writer. Right. right. Yeah, no, I, any... I, I, yeah, I understand. Yeah, because if you lose uh, 10 coal jobs here, you might pick up 30 solar jobs there. And so in the aggregate, you're, you gain 20 jobs from that regulation if that's again, what like, happens. National employment is determined by these big, broad macroeconomic trends, right? Demographics, mm-hmm. uh, population, all that stuff. Again, regulations are just like a tiny, tiny, you know, in the grand scheme of things, they're just a tiny, uh, uh, they have a tiny role in that drama. I, I, I kind of, you know, as I was reading this, uh, in, in one sense, your uh, article at Vox.com, Trump White House quietly issues report vindicating Obama regulations. As I'm reading this and, and looking at the details, I'm like, yeah, of course, no, duh. Um, and, and it seems almost stupid to talk about it, but... It never gets talked about. And so, you know, why don't our media push these guys on the reasons for cutting such regulations? It seems like all they have to say is, you know, Republicans have to, they're burdensome, they're job killing. And that's that. And this has been going on yeah, for years. This is not just the Trump administration. It's been going on for years. Well, no, this has been developing since yeah. Reagan, right? I mean, yeah. this dynamic has been, it's, it's, again, Trump has made it kind of grosser. Right. <laughs> But it's but not fundamentally different, and you know it. I, I, it is easy to blame the media, and I I blame the media plenty. But but I think in this instance, a lot of the blame should go to the left, to the Democratic Party, because and this is this is a hobby horse of mine. So so pardon me, a small rant here. But mm-hmm. look on the right, there are probably a dozen think tanks on the right mm-hmm. devoted purely to arguing that government can't do good things, that government is bad and ineffective, Mm -hmm. inexpensive as such, right? Mm -hmm. And then look on the left. You have the environmentalists, 
you got labor people who like labor, you know, regulations. You got this group. You got that group. Who on the left is defending government as a force of good, as such? Mm-hmm. Where is the where is the think tank that is devoted to saying government can do good? Regulations are are good. Regulations produce more benefits than costs. Government investments can spur economic growth, just the general case for government. Mm-hmm. Nobody's really making it. So reporters, you know, in a sense, just reflect kind of the, the environment they're in. And if they are inundated day in and day out by arguments about how bad government is, and the only thing they get from the other side is sort of wan defenses of this regulation or that regulation, you know, they're not going to they're mm-hmm. not going to venture into the breach and, and be sort of spokesman yep. for the pro-government position on their own. They need something to point to, right? They need to be able to say, but, but X, Y, and Z says the opposite. So how do you yeah. explain that? You know, like, so I, just, I feel like the left is not, is not uh, giving them the ammunition they would need no. to do that. Yeah, you know, you're right. There is this sort of default position, particularly since uh, Reagan's uh, what I call, you know, the, the the greatest con, the greatest hoax on the American people. You know, when Reagan said that, uh, you know, government is not uh, the solution. Yeah. Government is the problem. And that yep. is, you're right, reflexively as a society, that's sort of where we are. Anything that you can do it's away with. It's kind of with, sunk in, right? Yeah. It's kind of sunk in. Even yep. I, I find it I mean, it's amazing to me, even people I know, like friends and acquaintances who are not particularly political or not particularly clued in or engaged, that that idea has just kind of like so permeated culture that you find it sort of reflexively repeated even by people who aren't that engaged in politics. This is notion that sort of bureaucrats sort of muck things up, you know, like that when government tries to do something, it's expensive and bungled. Just that sort of general notion mm-hmm. has permeated culture because there's no... There's no coordinated force pushing back. Yep. David Roberts will point uh, uh, folks over to your article, uh, Trump White House Quietly Issues Report Vindicating Obama Regulations, where wherein the Trump administration actually argues in favor of regulations with actual evidence to support them. Uh, David Roberts, always great talking to you, my friend, and uh, I, I hope we will do it again soon. All right. See you, Brad. Thank you, brother. You can, of course, find his work at Vox.com, and you should follow him on the Twitters at DRVox. We like to call him Dr. Vox. Okay, Desi Doyen's on deck with the Green News Report next. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Okay. Are you ready, Desi Doyen? Oh, yeah. All right. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. And here it is, our latest Green News Report. We don't have to accept 
hideous sacrifices that harm the poorest among us. We need governments, in our opinion, to put a price on carbon. Stark contrast on climate between U.S. and Europe at Energy Industry Conference. Bad news for elephants, good news for a U.S. electric grid powered by clean solar and wind. Plus, as the Arctic experiences one of its warmest winters ever, Europe has experienced one of its coldest. The Arctic just had its warmest winter on record, and polar scientists are kind of freaking out. All of that freaking out and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. They do lie to us repeatedly about global warming, and then it's global cooling, and then it's global. The Ice Age is coming, Time Magazine had, then the Earth is going to blow up and burn up, and now... They just, they just call it global whatever. No, they don't, Sean Hannity. Stop lying and please get some new shtick. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, as Sean Hannity continues to use the same lies year after year after year, you have actual new news from the Arctic, and it's not very good. No, it's not. And it is now official. The Arctic just had its warmest winter on record. That's according to the scientists at the U.S. National Snow and Ice Data Center, who say that it is likely caused by global warming. Sea ice hit the lowest winter extent ever recorded. Temperatures in the Arctic are closer to those typically seen in the month of May. And it's kind of freaking out polar scientists. U.S. scientist Mark Sorrell called the conditions, quote, unprecedented and crazy, crazy stuff. You're saying the temperatures in the Arctic in March are like the temperature is usually in May? Yeah. Wow. What happens in the Arctic, of course, doesn't stay in the Arctic. The loss of sea ice in the Arctic has been linked to changes in the jet stream causing extreme weather events. While the Arctic is experiencing its warmest winter ever, Europe is experiencing one of its coldest winters ever, and the northeastern U.S. is seeing back-to-back intense winter storms. Don't tell Sean Hannity. Meanwhile, stark contrasts on the global energy transition were on display between the U.S and Europe at the big Sarah Energy Industry Conference in Houston this week. In a rambling speech, Energy Secretary Rick Perry touted the surge in U.S. fossil fuel exports and called for making fossil fuels cleaner. I call it the new energy realism. We would welcome and help lead, for that matter, a global alliance of countries willing to help make fossil fuels cleaner rather than abandoning them. Man, when did Rick Perry become such a drama queen? Oh, he was always that way. Not surprisingly, Perry did not mention climate change, but Europe-based oil companies are going in the opposite direction. Right after Perry spoke, the CEO of Royal Dutch Shell said the world, quote, has to change because climate change will be so disruptive. The CEO of British Petroleum, Bob Dudley, called for efficiently managing what he was calling the global energy transition to meet emissions cuts under the United United Nations Paris Climate Agreement. Dudley also called for governments to put a price on carbon emissions that cause dangerous global warming. We need all sectors of the economy to bring emissions down and consumers as well. And we need governments, in our opinion, to put a price on carbon. That would enable us to do a whole lot more. 
So the CEO of oil company BP is calling for a carbon tax? Yep, that's right. Again, don't tell Sean Hannity or Rick Perry. Meanwhile, some bad news for elephants. The Trump administration's Fish and Wildlife Service has quietly announced that it will now allow the importation of endangered elephant body parts from African nations on a case-by-case basis, a reversal of President Trump's statements earlier this year that he would keep the Obama-era ban on such trophy imports. Well, you know how those forgotten men and women in the Midwest love their elephant trophy hunting. But some good news. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals has unanimously rejected the Trump administration's attempt to block a lawsuit led by 21 young people who are suing the federal government for failure to act on climate change. The ruling means that the children's case brought by the nonprofit environmental law group Our Children's Trust can now go forward in federal court. Finally, a new study of decades of U.S. weather data has calculated that solar and wind energy alone could reliably supply 80 percent of all U.S. electricity demand. By investing in system-wide upgrades to the electric grid and deployment of battery storage, which, by the way, would also create jobs, the U.S. could have emissions-free clean electricity by mid-century. Clean energy and jobs. Yep. Wrong kind of energy. Wrong kind of jobs, I guess. For the Trump administration. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Don't forget, you can download our reports anytime via Stitcher, TuneIn, or iTunes. Find us, follow us, and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. And this has been your Green News Report. The answer, my friend. Is blowing in the wind The answer is blowing in the wind Never mind you and your answers, <laughs> Desi Oh, Dwayne. you know, me and my little solutions. Yeah, your solutions and, and your facts, as I mentioned with David Roberts, that you have been reporting on those uh, studies that come out all the time showing that you know, regulations, the benefits of regulations are much greater than the costs. Oh, especially environmental re- yeah. regulations. When you read his article, it shows that environmental regulations by far have the highest benefits, especially yep. for air pollution. Yes, but we must ignore you now. <laughs> Thank you, Des, uh, our producer, Desi Doyen. My thanks also to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It's always appreciated. Uh, you can, if you missed any portion of today's show or any other, you can download any of them for free anytime at bradblog.com or at your favorite podcast site. You can drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. And as ever, my great thanks to those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help support the work that we do here on uh, on the Bradcast and on the Green News Report. We rely only on you, not corporations, not uh, political outfits. We rely on you, and we could use your help. bradblog.com slash donate. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs> <laughs>